part of why I was so geeked to interview you is I knew going into Art of Power, this is a new podcast, it's our first season, I knew going into it, we needed to have at least one guest whose name is Power. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> oh, man. So that's literally how I got on. It's just being named after the podcast. You're the inaugural power guest. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> I, I knew this name would come in handy one day. <laughs> From WBEZ Chicago, this is Art of Power. I'm Arthi Shahani. Today, Kemp Powers is the writer of One Night in Miami, which was nominated for an Academy Award. He is also the first black director in the history of Pixar, the American cultural institution that is very white. In the process of writing and directing Soul, Pixar's first feature film with a black lead character, Kemp found himself on the forefront of changing the company culture. Like, I remember I had a hilarious discussion with one of the designers and she had like showed me a character design she was like and you'll notice the character you know is not going to have a belt because you know i was told that black people don't wear belts kemp power's envious achievements are the culmination of an unenvious journey a hard slog filled with tragedy, sharp turns, and self-doubt. A recovering journalist, Kemp and I talk about his relative lack of childhood ambition, how the newsroom almost killed his creativity, and how he salvaged it one snowy night when he nearly died. I'm going to really give this creative thing of mine a real honest go, like 100%. Like, this is what I'm going to do every day. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. When Kemp Powers seized the world's attention in 2020 with Soul and One Night in Miami, which was directed by Regina King, he was 47 years old. When you were younger, say 19, say 20, did you think I'm going to be a history-making filmmaker one day? Is that sort of what you saw for yourself? Well, no. I mean, filmmaker wasn't even on the agenda when I was 19. When I was 19, I still didn't know what I was going to do with my life. I mean, I was a freshman in college. I was writing for my school newspaper. Honestly, the thing that I was most passionate about back then is me and some um, fellow students, we started an independent comic book company. And honestly, um, my my Mm. dreams at that time were like maybe getting a job writing comic books for Marvel or DC. Like that would have been that would have been kind of like the high watermark. Mm, Interesting. (laughs) And so your dream for yourself was ultimately not as big as your reality became. Yes, definitely. Hmm. This is something I actually remember saying out loud to someone in my 20s. If I could one day make $40,000 a year from my writing, I could like die a happy man. (laughs) I actually said it'll be enough for me to live on and I'll be doing something that I love and, and all will be right in the world. 
I, mm. I know how absurd that sounds now, mm. but that was the dream. You know, it doesn't sound absurd to me so much as refreshing because I've interviewed a fair number of people who I respect deeply, by the way, but mm-hmm. who say some version of, you got to dream big enough. The dream's got to be big. Mm. But it doesn't seem like that's what happened No, the dream for me was not to ever be famous for what I was doing, but to be well known amongst other people who did what I do. Hmm. You hear about writers who other writers like or comedians who were beloved by other comedians who aren't very famous, but like other, that's what I wanted to be for a creative writing. So I, I guess I wanted to be seen as like an excellent craftsman, hmm. if that makes any mm-hmm. sense. It does. Kemp achieved that goal in spades with his recent great works. It was so amazing to get calls from people whose work I've admired for years or decades reach out to me unprompted and say, I just wanted to meet you because you did something special. May I ask, like, whom? I want to hear who are some of your heroes who you've heard from. I guess without saying, you know, the content and what they reached out about or how they reached out, let's just say I heard from, like, everyone from... Reginald Hudlin, who was one of my favorite filmmakers when I was a young man, mm. to Ken Burns, the documentarian. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, you know what uh-huh. I mean? And it was just like, it was really amazing. How do you go from an aspiring comic book writer into journalism, a career I gather you had a kind of love-hate relationship with? Well, I I guess I love journalism more than journalism loved me, is the best way Hmm. to describe it. Hmm. Um, I really dove passionately into being a really good reporter, a great researcher, being incredibly accurate, Mm -hmm. because being right, being correct, not making mistakes, Mm -hmm. these were things that at at a lot of the publications that I worked, you know, a mistake got you fired. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I mean, like a mistake, like a typo, misspelling someone's name. Mm-hmm. Like there was no, yeah, no accuracy really mattered before there was twenty four seven. Yes, publishing, and right? and mm-hmm. and I witnessed the transition from accuracy being important to speed being more important than accuracy. Mm-hmm. And when speed became more important than accuracy, I overnight started feeling like a dinosaur. Huh? And how old were you? 37, 38. Mm, you're approaching middle age and feeling like, holy crap, I'm going to age out of this industry badly. Oh, yeah. Like I was in that weird space where I wasn't close of anywhere near close enough to retirement. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they wouldn't push you out. But you had like a real living wage salary, which mm-hmm. you had a target on your back because it's like, why are we paying this editor Mm-hmm. $95,000 when we can get three straight out of J school kids who are faster for the same price. So then what do you do? Um, I honestly was kind of terrified because I didn't ever think my creative writing, which I've always done for fun on the side, I didn't ever think it was anything I could make a living doing. Hmm. Um, I, I just really, really didn't. I was kind of Thinking about saving up to to start a small business, Mm -hmm. you know, thinking about moving to um, a smaller city or a smaller town, someplace where the cost of living was lower. And it's funny that the thing that I had been doing that entire time, which was my creative writing, that didn't even seem like an option. And why? I have my guesses as to why, 
but I'll save them. I, I mean, I guess it was a combination of things. It was the fact that, you know, when you, when you put your work out there and you, you see audiences respond positively to it, but your peers are never really do. I mean, I had, I always had good friends who said like, oh, wow, I really enjoy your stuff. But it was always kind of like your peers react to your work like, oh, that's fun that you do that. Or that's interesting. But like, oh, man, that's that's a version of it that like you'll never be able to do that. Mm. There's this kind of diminishing amongst your peers. Absolutely. Like and you just you're constantly being reminded that like you're not good enough or, oh, it's cool that you're writing your plays. Too bad you didn't go to Yale drama school because then you could have made a career out of it. You know what I mean? So Mm. like I I remember at a certain point when I'd been doing a lot of my writing and it had been getting a lot of notice and I was still, of course, you know, a journalist. um, And I said to one of my coworkers that like, oh, I'm on a bit of like a general news beat. And I was like, I don't really think I should be covering anything in entertainment anymore i said i think i should focus on hard news and politics and they were like well why and i was like well it kind of feels like it might become a conflict of interest because you know i'm writing Mm. (laughs) and they and they like laughed in my face Mm. they were like your writing will never be a conflict of interest for you working at a news organization oh my god yeah like what haters and that was like my coworker (laughs) sitting at the desk next to me and that's why, and, and I tell this when I speak to students, when I speak to anyone, like when you, I say, when you see something that really moves you, whether it's at a small theater or whatever, and you, if you have an opportunity to mm-hmm. tell the person who did it something kind, how it moved you, and you might think that that just like rolls off their shoulder, it isn't. Like, nah, they needed to hear it. Yeah. Yes. Those yeah. kindnesses are often like, because they're so, they can be so rare totally that that's like the only thing that keeps you going for another day because the negativity is a boulder and it's coming from you know you're in creative arts is competitive so you have people who are passive aggressively competitive who are like trying to take your knees out from under you you have your your co-workers (laughs) who think you're an idiot you have your family who both love you and support you but also, are like, oh man, a bird in the hand is worth yeah. two in the bush. Yeah, you should, yeah. you know, there's... they don't quite believe in you because how would it be possible for you to make money from your creative writing? Yes, right. you feel like a crazy person, and until you get to like a Zen place, I guess, where you're just like, well, I guess I'm just going to be that guy everyone laughs at. When you're getting hate from your coworkers, who are basically explicitly or implicitly saying, "Man, you don't have what it takes. You can't do this thing." What do you say to yourself to keep going? If I'm being perfectly honest, mm-hmm. um, I'm saying, fuck you. <laughs> How do you get past that? to then bulldoze your way into entertainment? Well, it's interesting because I wouldn't say that I bulldozed my way into anything. Hmm. I just kind of, I put my head down. By put my head down, what Kemp Powers means is he lifted his voice up. Not the newsman, but the man, his inner creative. 
I'm 37 years old, and I wasn't really very good at much of anything in my 20s, um, least of all marriage. But I ended up telling a lot of stories and and touring with the moth and you know oh. the, the moth. Yeah, so storytelling <laughs> was really what it was. Kemp was writing short plays and hitting the performance circuit in Los Angeles. He toured with The Moth, which puts on live storytelling shows in cities across the country. It's fantastic, by the way. You should totally go. People show up, drop their name in a hat if they want to speak, and when picked, they tell a true story with no notes. Can you tell me about a couple of your Moth episodes that you like the most? Um, the ones, uh, the, the two that I liked the most were the two about my children. Um, one of them um, was a story about just me feeling like I was being a bad dad to my son because I came from this environment in Brooklyn in the 80s where everything was about being hard and being tough. And when my son, particularly when he was very little, he was so sensitive and sweet that I was concerned that I was raising, you know, a weakling and that I had failed as a dad. I often found myself asking, just why is my son such a little bitch all the time? And I, you know, I played with it comically, but it was about me kind of reassessing um, what it what it meant to be um, a, a good father and, and a good man. Mm-hmm. And then I told a story um, about my daughter that just involved like how I, I got divorced and the the challenges I would say for me to like feel like I was good enough to connect with her and start having like a relationship with her of my own. And our drives out of the desert, my daughter and I hardly ever spoke. And I was pretty glad about that. Because not talking meant that I never really had to explain why we were in the situation that we were in. Kemp goes to some gut-wrenching places on the moth. Places that, when we asked him, he said he did not want to discuss in our interview. When you listen to his moth shows... It feels like he's taking that metaphorical shovel and pickaxe and sledgehammer and prying out the rubble inside. Was that hard for you? It was very hard. Hmm. It was very hard. It was, it honestly kind of felt freeing because Hmm. here's the thing is that it seems like based on social media, everyone's happier than me. Everyone has a better life than me. Everyone is smarter than me. And I'm like, according to social media, I am the world's biggest loser. (laughs) So in that environment, I was like, I'm going to try something different. How about I just like go up and tell the fucking truth? Mm. I I wanted to reveal the honest version of myself. Not everything that goes on in my life, but just talk about some things that I struggle with. That Mm. at times you feel like you are alone. That everyone's a good parent, according to social media. Everyone's kid is a genius, according to social media. <laughs> I'm serious. So I'm like, what the hell's wrong with me that my kid got a C? Uh-huh. uh-huh. You know? And then you talk to your friends, and you'll find out that one of your friend's kids just got four Fs. And you're like, wait a minute. Like, I- Why did you post that? <laughs> so I just wanted to, it was refreshing to just kind of like lay it out there and see a couple of like judgmental faces, you know? When I'd get up on stage and say, I was worried that I was turning my son into a little bitch, that Mm -hmm. there would be a certain number of people who would clutch their pearls and complain. Not politically correct. 
Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But mm-hmm. I, but I'm just like But you were actually genuinely worried and you said so. Yeah, exactly. And right. it's like and if you get to the end of the story, you should be able to laugh at that comment because you will realize that I came to the conclusion that I was being such a fool. People would have you believe that they've always been kind-hearted people who never made mistakes and never were cruel and if that's the case, what life did I just live? What what just happened with all the cruel people I've had to, as you would say, bulldoze my way through? Mm-hmm. That was my first time understanding that my unique voice had merit. Mm-hmm. Let's talk now about one of your great works, maybe the you could say the first one that that really began to move the needle for you as a creative. You did extensive research on four black men who embodied different roles in the civil rights movement. They were Malcolm X, Cassius Clay, aka Muhammad Ali, Jim Brown, the NFL legend, and King of Soul, Sam Cooke. These four men famously spent one night together in Miami. It was the night Cassius Clay won the Boxing Heavyweight World Championship. Why did this one night in Miami and these men become your obsession? Oh, because all four of them were my heroes. They were, I've always been a huge history nerd. Always have, going back to when I was really, really young. I remember... I remember reading um, the autobiography of Malcolm X Mm -hmm. for the first time when I was like 16 Mm -hmm. and immediately held it in the same regard as an epic, you know, like the once and future king. (laughs) It was uh, Mm -hmm. only it was real. And it was uh, his life was a story about redemption. Mm -hmm. And you have to understand, we live in a country where if you're a black man, you can be made to feel that you're irredeemable, Mm -hmm. you know, and you can be made to feel irredeemable based on anything that you do wrong here's a guy who like was was living proof that like you could be as he described himself a bad dude and mm-hmm. change mm-hmm. and um i already muhammad ali was a hero anyway just because of any number of things i don't have to explain right now sure. but the discovery that they spent the night with sam cook and jim brown who were two other heroes for similar reasons that just really lit a spark in, in me. And so how did it turn from obsessive research in your moonlighting hours as a journalist into a play one night in Miami? Uh, I guess necessity being the mother of invention. <laughs> the research wasn't started with the plan to write a play or a film. The research was started with the plan to write a book. I would, I would talk to publishers about this idea I had for a book. And they, I would repeatedly hear, it's an interesting idea, but why would no one's going to let you write it? Wow. Um, why, why would someone want you to write it? That's, oh, I did not realize this This great work of art grew from rejection from the publishing industry? Of, almost everything I've done grows <laughs> from rejection from someone. Absolutely. It's like, that's the type of book that, well, you're not an academic. That's a book that academics get to write. That's, uh, you know what I mean? You're just a reporter. That's like, no, you're not... Qualified. And so you were basically forced to go to the theater. Well, no, I just put all my research in the corner. 
This stack of research became a play because once Kemp settled in Los Angeles, where, as we mentioned, he was doing The Moth and writing short plays, the artistic director of a local theater came up to him one day. He was like, hey, you should write a play about the Freedom Riders. You know, he's mm. like, it would be great to get a movement. play about mm. the Civil Rights Movement and the Freedom Riders. And I was like, I am not the guy to write a play uh, like a kumbaya play about a Freedom Riders in the South. <laughs> that, I am not the guy for that. He's like, well, what play would you write? And I was like, I'll tell you what play I'd write. You know, yeah. I said I'd write a play with no white people in it. Mm. You know, and I told him the, the premise of One Night in Miami. After the fight, we're all coming back here for the champs victory party. Don't be late. Part of what you inevitably found in your research, or at least what you framed in the ultimate work that you shared with the world, is how each of these men was deeply inspiring to you, but also really conflicted with each other. Right. Well, it was. A, it's really about. Look, I'll be perfectly honest. When you when you watch the film, you're seeing the internal conflict going on inside my own brain all the time. Hmm. I congratulate you on being so shrewd, brother. You just don't get how everything's not so black and white like you make it out to be. In your mind, President Kennedy getting assassinated is just another one of those white devils getting what they deserve. Well, I like JFK, man. My mama cried when he died. Mine did, too. How do you think it made me feel to have her see my friend on TV talking about good riddance? No, I, 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 didn't, I didn't say, no, Sam, I didn't say good riddance. You said it was chickens coming home to roost. Yes, I was I, trying to make a point, brother. It's the conflict of the psyche that I would believe, not just me, but a lot of black men experience. And I just reverse engineered the different ideas that are conflicted back into the characterizations of the men that inspired those ideas in me. So, for example, Malcolm X is a black nationalist who really pe preaches this gospel of nationalism versus, for example, Sam Cooke, King of Soul, who talks about participating in the white capitalist economy and winning in it. Well, or another way of saying it is that Malcolm wants to burn the system down and mm -hmm. Sam wants to work within the system. Absolutely. Yeah. You're just a wind-up toy in a music box. A, 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 a monkey. That's what you are. You're a monkey dancing for an organ grinder to them. That's what they symbolize in the film. In reality, both men are more complex than that. Look, if, if you want to have like the reality of these four men, all of their opinions and politics are actually quite close to one another. You know? But of course, you can't have a movie or a play without conflict. You know, when I watched One Night in Miami, I didn't get to see it as a play. I saw it on the screen. It struck me because for me, it wasn't just like a wonderful casting of four different archetypes of the civil rights movement. And that's what you're doing, right? Like, mm -hmm. as you've just said, you know, you, you took these four characters and you maybe exaggerated their differences to sort of help us see the conflicts in ourselves um, or in that movement in that historical period. That that definitely struck me. The other thing that struck me, I'll say, Kemp, is I don't think I've ever watched a movie before with a group of men hanging out mm -hmm. that wasn't about getting drunk, partying, or chasing skirts. <laughs> Name one. Yeah, I've I... never seen it. <laughs> yeah. And the interesting thing is the hangout that I wrote in that film, that was like a hangout I've had with my own friends. Hmm. 
Like, it's a hangout that I've had where we were arguing and it would get loud and heated. You hear how animated I am. Imagine that dialed up to 20. No, I love it. And it would look like from an outsider, it would look like we're having a, about to have a fight. And then we still leave as friends because ultimately we can disagree, but we know that we want the same things. We just disagree about how to get there. After the break, the night Kemp Powers nearly died, the promise he made to himself, and the mindset he brought with him when he became the first Black director at Pixar. I always tread politely and respectfully, but no, I never tread carefully. This is Art of Power from WBEZ. I'm Arthi Shahani. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Have you ever had a near-death experience? Kent Powers has, and the timing was, in my opinion, a signpost from God. It happened on a very big night. One night in Miami, which was still a play, not yet a film, was opening in Baltimore at Center Stage, the State Theater of Maryland. Kemp had graduated into the big leagues. Also, it was flu season. And apparently I had the mother of all allergic reactions to Tamiflu. And it's a very, very, very rare allergic reaction And it's that you can get um, rhabdomyolysis. Basically, your muscles begin to dissolve Mm. and the muscle protein causes your organs to shut down. Mm. I had trouble walking. um, And by the time I finally went into the hospital, um, and I know this is TMI, but for those who don't know what symptoms of rhabdomyolysis, um, my urine had turned black. Oh, my God. Because one of the big symptoms is you basically are urinating out your muscle protein. So um, I've never heard of that. It's usually the side effect of a crushing injury. You often see rhabdomyolysis in in earthquakes when people get crushed. But in my case, um, the hospital said I had the most extreme case the hospital had ever seen. Um, And they were actually shocked that I hadn't already like collapsed. And so coming out of it, I mean, people often say about near-death experiences, I've never had one myself, that it can sometimes change your worldview or you make commitments to yourself. And from what I've read about you, it sounds like you had that kind of evolution that you came out of your near-death experience with a new commitment to yourself. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's an understatement. I mean, even Mm -hmm. before I knew I was coming out of it, because at the time, Understand, I was still hanging on to the threads of journalism. I'd been mm-hmm. laid off by my last journalism job um, and then rehired immediately by a competitor, but of course, as a contractor, no benefits. No health insurance. No health insurance. Mm-hmm. And the week of my opening, I was also supposed to be working remotely. So I was getting up at like three in the morning and working a shift before I went over to the theater. 
Wow. So when I got put in the hospital, I, of course, had to call into work to say, like, I can't work tomorrow. And it was just this weird kind of like, oh, okay, we'll get someone to cover it. Let us know when you're out of the hospital. <laughs> no connection to your experience at all. Yeah, your it was commodity. just this kind yeah. of like, no big deal shrug. Um, y- you know, if you holler, give us a holler if you don't die. I didn't, no one said that, but that's how I felt in that moment. I was very sensitive and very angry. And I was just like laying in the hospital. It was snowing outside. It was like, you couldn't write a more sentimental, sad moment. And, and I was like, oh, my God, if I get out of here, I'm going to really give this, this creative thing of mine a real honest go. Like, I've, I've been saying I'm trying to do it, but there's a difference between trying to do it on nights and weekends and devoting yourself 100%. Like, this is what I'm going to do every day. Emotionally, the impetus is obvious. Internal organ failure and Ebenezer Scrooge for an employer – but financially, there is a key detail. Kemp Powers had savings. He had enough money in the bank to pay his bills. Not forever, for a nice chunk of time. I have two years mm-hmm. to make this work. Yes. And if at the end of that two years, it didn't work, I will happily go do something else for the rest of my life, confident in the fact that I really gave it a try. <laughs> Kemp, I hate to say this, but I'm like, you decided to bulldoze. (laughs) I don't know why I'm so attached to that word with you. I'm sorry. I guess because when I think back on it, I never think of myself as having done any bulldozing or or pushing too hard. It was... Okay, I promise. Last time. I'm not going to bring it up again. Okay, I'm letting that word go. Okay. That Baltimore production of One Night in Miami, the one that happened while Kemp was on his near-death bed, it took off. The show sold out, got extended twice, and put Kemp on the map. It exploded. I mean, it, it, it was a huge hit in Baltimore. So I had a lot of creative momentum from the play that resulted in me drawing interest from Hollywood. With one hit, doors flung open that Kemp had been knocking for years. He started writing for TV shows like Star Trek Discovery. He wrote a pilot script for an original comedy and sold it to FX. The show didn't actually end up getting made, but, you know, we were in development. We were writing scripts. So I started getting those those jobs and moving up within the ranks and, and kind of like, OK, I think I'm going to be able to figure out how to get some wins writing for television. As his star was rising... Kemp Powers had an important confidant, a talent agent, who asked him, if you could write movies, what kind of movies would you write? And, and I told him, I was like, honestly, original movies. I said, <laughs> ideas not based on comic books or other content. And he was like... Not adaptations. Yeah, he was like, do you know how hard that is to have happen? Like Hollywood just existing IP is king when it comes to movies. Uh-huh. And and my and my attitude at the time was like, well, I guess I'm like never going to write a movie then. Now, to mm-hmm. my agent's credit, um, and I got to give a huge shout out to Eric Garfinkel over at Gersh. Mm-hmm. He took that and instead of saying like, oh, well, this guy, you know, he doesn't want to mess with film, he was like, okay, well, is there anyone in Hollywood just doing original stories? Huh. And Pixar came up. So, I didn't even know, but 
he started reaching out to Pixar on my behalf for years. Oh, wow. And he sent them One Night in Miami. And they read my play and decided they wanted to meet me. They were like, oh, well, this play is really good. Does he have anything else that's a little funnier? And so then um, my agent sent them that unproduced pilot that I had sold to FX that didn't get made. I describe myself as a storyteller. And I've always considered Pixar the house of master storytelling. And just like with other things, I never saw myself working there for that very reason. I was like, I'll never be on a level where I could work on a Pixar movie. It's interesting, this not, you know, you know you're a storyteller, but you don't imagine you have a place among the masters of storytelling. I know it's uh I understand Kev I mean to some extent you know if you're like if you're kind of self-effacing you're not like douchey egotistical it makes sense it's not you know I'm not I'm not saying it doesn't make sense it's just funny because when I when I hear you saying it it's uh it's eye-opening yeah so tell me about your first visit to Pixar you get this call because your agent has secretly been knocking on their door for years shout out to Eric for doing that and yeah, I mean, <laughs> so what was that first meeting like? You go to their to their campus in Emeryville, and well, it was very weird. That's for sure because it was so cloak and dagger. Um, I didn't know anything <laughs> about the. Pro- My agent had no information, uh-huh. so of course, when Eric, when my agent said like, you know, they want to meet you, the first thing I asked was like, why? What did they read of mine? You know what I mean? And so once I knew what they read of mine. My immediate assumption was they must be doing some kind of film with black subject matter. Uh-huh. <laughs> you're like, the black guy. You're the black guy. And they've never had a black director or a black protagonist. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, oh, man, if they read One Night in Miami and my unproduced pilot called My First Black Friend um, and want to meet me, <laughs> then I'm assuming that has something to do with this movie. So yeah. I was incredibly intrigued. They sent me the reels. And um, it was the beginnings of a story that would be the the film Soul. And they asked me my honest opinions about about what I've seen. And I just started talking, the things that I found exciting. Anything that I found problematic, I I offered up like, here's what I would do if it were up to me. Mm. You know, and I started kind of just pitching different ideas out. Did you self-censor at all? Because I'm like, I'm no. imagining this. No, I didn't self-censor at all. But you know why I'm asking, right? You get why I'm asking. Because it's mm-hmm. like, you're a black person going to what has culturally been a very, very, very white space. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, do you have to tread carefully? I mean, I always tread politely and respectfully, but no, I never tread carefully. Working in, in any business, you know, it's collaborative, meaning, meaning mm-hmm. you got to be honest, but also you got to like try to not be an asshole. And, mm-hmm. and I think because of, oddly enough, because of movies, people often have this idea that talented, successful people are all just walking around, throwing around their weight and being obnoxious. And, mm-hmm. and that's actually not the case. It's not just what mm-hmm. you say, it's how you say it. Mm-hmm. Like, here's one of the rules that I have when it comes to critique. It's, it's if I think something doesn't work, but I don't have 
a good solution to suggest keep it to myself. Because mm-hmm. no one wants to hear, I just didn't like that. Yeah. No one wants to hear that. That's not helping anyone is that I hated that. The end. Or that offended me. The end. Are you able to give an example of how you did that with soul in the making? One of the things about the, the first reel that I saw is that Joe didn't seem to have any friends or any family. He was just mm. like alone hmm. all the time. And I got this impression that he didn't know anyone. This was one of Kemp's contributions, creating a backstory for Joe, the lead character played by Jamie Foxx. He fleshed out Joe's mom. She owned a tailor shop. She was the sole breadwinner for the family. Joe was pursuing an unlikely career as a jazz musician. And so Kemp asked, how did his mom feel about that? Most times, this shop is what paid the bills. So when I'm gone, who's going to pay yours? Music is all I think about. From the moment I wake up in the morning to the moment I fall asleep at night. You can't eat dreams for breakfast, Joey. Then I don't want to eat. This isn't about my career, Mom. It's, it's my reason for living. And I know Dad felt the same way. She's getting old. He's still leaning on her financially, even into middle age. When she's gone, he's pursuing this dream, and he's got nothing to fall back on. It's only a matter of time after she dies before her son is out on his ass. I got to ask, with the mom stuff, was that in any way reflective of your own life and your relationship with your mom? Completely. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's it kind of... That's, that was the relationship. <laughs> I mean, like, that's... <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, like, take, take out the, like, her supporting dad in place of, like, her being a single mom supporting a bunch of kids. Mm-hmm. And me being this kid who was seen as, like, so smart and having so much potential and her having to watch me just struggle well into adulthood. She thought you'd be the one making money and you were yes. floundering about searching for your purpose. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. That's, that scene was very personal to me. Let's put it that way. I'm just afraid that if I died today, that my life would have amounted to nothing. Another huge issue was for me was that the Joe never passed through what I felt were authentically black spaces. That's when I came up the whole barbershop scene. That's what it came from, and I came up with all of that. Sometimes change is good. You have been rocking that same style for a while. Well, does for hundreds of years I've had no style at all. You can say that again. <laughs> Did you feel in any way? tokenized because they were essentially they were looking for black expertise and you're the black guy they bring in well that was my big fear right off the bat and i was that was another thing i was pretty vocal about from the beginning was that now that i'm here it's not like whoo okay our black base is covered i kept saying again and again i am one guy who happens to be black i do not speak for black america like you have to have as many black voices as possible involved in this film all the way up the food chain. If there are black storyboard artists on other films in development, it's really key that they be on this one. If there's black animators 
Like every black animator at Pixar should be working at Soul. There's not that many of them, but they should all be working on this. Um, the head of our security team was in the Culture Trust. You know, you could if you were black and you worked at Pixar, you could be on the Culture Trust for Soul. And getting that group to actually open up, you know, some people don't want to ruffle any feathers. Yeah, and and it's it's really hard when you work at Pixar Disney. To it's a corporate environment to to trust that you opening up is going to be received well. Blowback, yeah, and so, and so were you spearheading effectively like a sort of diversity and inclusion culture change effort as you're also coming in as a freelancer to work on this film? Well, they ha- I don't want to. That's I think that's overstating it because they actually have someone Britta Wilson who was in you know in charge of diversity and inclusion who was amazing, but like Britta and I quickly became close friends let's put it that way mm-hmm. and they listened that's the key thing is that like they really listened and i don't believe i mean i've had people say like people at the executive level say like this making this film has inspired a cultural shift and it's not just the making of the film it's what happened while we were making the film things like george floyd like things were happening in the world that made race f- in the forefront and you could see it playing out in, in, in really subtle ways. Like, I remember I had a hilarious discussion with one of the um, designers. And she had, like, showed me a character design. And she was like, oh, and um, and, the, and you'll notice the character, you know, is, is not going to have a belt. Because, you know, I was told that black people don't wear belts. <laughs> oh, my God. And I was like, wait a minute. Who the hell? I said, who the hell told you that? And it was like, I think it was someone from one of the culture trusts. <laughs> but you see what I mean? Like, no. And of course, I pull up my shirt and show her my belt. You've got to have a really good sense of humor or patience to also deal with that. Kind of- you do. But I, but the yeah. thing is, this is coming from a well-meaning place. People are actually trying to do their best. But that's how easy it is. And again, and you, you, there was yeah. there was one consultant who said that black people hate cats now yes there might be some black people who hate cats but i don't feel like that's an actionable generalization to make right right. and things that you would never say about well all white people xyz you would know that your source is faulty you would just know not to make that generalization yeah yes i know far too many black people with cats do you think that a younger version of yourself would not have been able to handle frankly, the kind of diplomacy it took for you to make soul at Pixar? A hundred percent. A younger me would have been too, I would have gotten angry. I would have, I would have internalized perceived slights in many cases that weren't even there. Me at 25 wouldn't have been equipped to do the things that I've been doing the, the past few years. You know, Kemp, the guiding question for our show in Art of Power it's how does power work in the real world? Like given your experiences, given everything that you've tried and done and succeeded at and failed, really, what have you learned about how power works? How would you answer that question? Um, I think one of the, well, I'm just going to answer with what was most illuminating to me when I began to get into positions that you would call positions of power Mm. um, is that, I think the perception of a lot of people 
is that power means having control over people, the ability to manage other people, Mm. people below you. And what I've found is the most important skill is managing up more than managing down. Mm. It's, It's, I think, calibrating the expectations of those above and below you so that they align. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is, and often the expectations of those above you and those below you are kind of like completely different. Mm. Was that your experience at Pixar? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, and that is not meant to be a pejorative about either group, but it's an element of it that I think people don't understand. A lot of creatives say that activism or a desire to change things ruins the creative work. But you've said, you said in a previous interview with Terry Gross on Fresh Air, you said, quote, I never don't think about personal and social responsibility. It's never not on my mind. Mm -hmm. That was the truth. It's never not on my mind. I see myself as a black artist. And I say that as a point of pride because I don't see it as a pejorative. Hmm. That, that is a way in which I have bulldozed, okay? Because <laughs> a lot of the walls of this business have been about people trying to put you in a box uh-huh. and say, because you're black, you're only able to tell stories about this or this kind of story. And a lot of opportunities that you wish you would have are denied to you because of your race or because of your gender. Now, my only way to get around that was to come to the realization that the whole range of experiences of the human experience are encapsulated in black people. Mm. Therefore, I'm going to figure out a way to tell every kind of story from a black perspective that I can. My lessons from Kemp Powers. One, don't just be a hater. Find to share your critique so long as you have a solution to be a solutions person. Two, whatever position you're in, manage up and down. Be the fulcrum in the middle between the sides speaking past each other. Three, give yourself a real chance. If you think you've got gold inside, don't tap at it with a toothpick. You know what I'm going to say here. Get on that bulldozer. Listeners, before you hit stop, one little thing. Remember how Kemp said in his interview, creative work is hard, and when a fan, an audience member tells you, hey, great job you did, it really helps to hear it. Well, on behalf of the Art of Power team, I am asking you, please tell us how we are doing by leaving a written review on Apple Podcasts. We know from technology that there are thousands of you who hit download every Thursday morning. If you're in that dedicated group, I am making this appeal directly to you.
This episode of Art of Power was produced by Justin Bull, Paloma Moreno-Jimenez, Hina Shravastava, and me, Arthi Shahani. Our executive producer is Kevin Dawson. On Twitter and Instagram, again, I'm at Arthi411. See you next week. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.